everybody and welcome to another episode of Trial by Fire. I'm joined by my good friend Yeremias today again. Uh, how are you, man? I'm good. Uh, I mean, I don't know if I said it in the last episode that we've got started to get some winter. Last time we were on together, at least, that we started to get some winter. But now it is plus six degrees. It's been raining for four days and it is disgusting. It is that like little hope of winter that you get every year. Like this happens without fail. You get that. You feel good. Then you have your dreams crushed by <laughs> yes. rain. Yeah, it's raining and miserable here as well. I think we're in, I think it might be like plus 10 or something here now. Like, so it's super, super warm. Um, but I mean, it's always the same, isn't it? You get that little tease of winter and then the spring or the autumn kind of comes back in again. And then a week later, you've got like, you're in six feet of snow. Yeah, exactly. And then now, since we don't have any snow right now, and it's pitch black by 4 p.m., about 16 in the afternoon, it is dark for a long time per day, really. Yeah, the clocks, since the clocks went back, it's it's pretty much the same here. It's not quite four. It's maybe about five, 5.30. Um we were only talking about it today it's just it's amazing how how much it drains your energy it makes such a big difference it makes such a big difference when you have some snow on the ground like it lights it lights up your world to 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 not have uh, have any puns intended there but it really does make a big difference absolutely i mean yeah like you said right now here in in finland it's super gray and uh raining every day for the last kind of week and it's just really draining and particularly for myself because i i work on the computer i'm working from home and you have to be quite disciplined in getting yourself out of the house because otherwise you end up i mean i usually don't start work realistically till about 10 o'clock we get up together we have a coffee blah blah blah. then i get the laptop out but if you're not careful you end up literally sitting at the kitchen table or your office desk from you know midday till 5 p.m 6 p.m without having left the house and then it's so dark out and unless you have a dog to walk or something like that and um, you've no re- you've no real reason to leave the house and you find it actually you might end up being in the house for like a couple of days in a row you know without having left now obviously it's different for you because your work is almost all of it is outdoor related so it's i wish i had a few more activities to, that i needed to get done just so it kind of forced me to get outside you know but I mean, it, it is it is still exhausting and draining this first period because even 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 if it is that this happens gradually, it is still that sort of transition period where everything is sort of your 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 body's adapting, and it is heavy, especially since there's no snow on the ground. Like it makes such a big difference. And even if we're out training the dogs or have to go out every single day to take care of the other animals and the dogs and hunting and and, and whatnot, you're still tired. It affects you. It there's no there's no secret to it other than to sort of let your body slowly adapt to the the changing uh, landscape and scenery. Not landscape, but this ch- changing season. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny that, isn't it? Because it's almost a guilt thing i guess maybe it's like at least for me speaking for someone who has spent a lot of time working in a city um where i suppose the the seasons is irrelevant you know it doesn't matter if it's the 25th of may or if it's 25th of october 
you're still in the office from nine till whatever, five thirty, six o'clock, you know, and your world is kind of surrounded by artificial light where I guess our bodies, like as humans, like we're not really, that's not, that's not part of our software. You know, I mean, I've re- recently finished um, an audio book called um, a hunter's a hunter gatherer's guide to the 21st century. And it's written by Bert, uh, Bert Weinstein and uh, Heather Heining. And basically like the, the converse or the, the basic premise of the book is that, you know, our hardware and our software hasn't been, hasn't been updated or adapted to our modern life and how we should be more sympathetic to, um, to our genetics basically and to our evolution and, and something like artificial light in the evening times is so alien to us and has literally existed in our psyche or in our world for such a short period of time um, that it kind of just like wreaks havoc on our, like on our energy levels, on our ability to sleep, on our ability to kind of function. Um, And it's just really interesting. Like they were saying, for example, like the, the light that's emitted from, um, from fire, for example, uh, doesn't keep us awake the same way as light emitted from a light bulb does because our our our, ev- our evolutionary brain or our you know our genetics has evolved to deal with firelight and as a signal that it's kind of time to go to sleep it's time to wind down our brains are able to chill the fuck out when we see campfire and it's i think it's one of the main reasons why you know people talk about when they go out camping for a week or, or more that after the second or third day, their brains really start to wire with the, with the light and the dark of the day. And I think when as modern people, whether you're on a homestead or whether you're in a city or whatever, we still have a lot of light, artificial light kind of infiltrating those, um, what would you call it? Those patterns or those sort of, uh, yeah. And so, it's no wonder that we're feeling tired and exhausted this time of year. The world is slowing down. Like everything in nature is slowing down. Animals are going to sleep. You know, it's, it's a time of year where most of the natural world is slowing down, but we're not allowed to because we're humans, you know? Um, so is it any wonder that we're all getting exhausted this time of year? I, I think we need to be less hard on ourselves for feeling like unmotivated or feeling like a little bit kind of lethargic this time of the year, you know? Yeah. I mean, it is, it, it, it makes sense. Like putting it in, in that perspective of, of that we are a part of nature and us as humans are a part of, of the natural world, whether we uh, agree with it or not, that's, that's a different, different uh, thing, but we are, a part of this world and and everything except us like you were saying is sort of starting to calm down and wind down and everything gets a little bit slower bears starts to hibernate and animals start to take it easier or starting to like really conserve energy for the coming winter so they're finding a spot to feed and then they are slowly moving on to another spot but i mean hen and i we try and roughly think in those terms even though fall now this time of year is often our most one of our most hectic seasons because everything needs to be harvested everything needs to be butchered and juice needs to be made jam needs to be made 
preserved, you know, like that whole thing, it is very stressful, but I guess we sort of take it out on maybe taking it a little bit easier, a little bit earlier in the evenings. So we work sort of, we get up early, we work from the first light, if you will, not, not, not exclusively, it's not perfect, we're not robots that can get up and work every, like, first light and then till the sun goes down, but we sort of try and, and uh, I guess get into a rhythm where we're doing all the things that we need to do during the light hours and then in the afternoon, evening, we do allow ourselves to sort of wedge out a bit more. Because it is, it is a lot of work to 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 get done, and it is it is changing work. It is everything from yeah, as I said, being out hunting to harvesting potatoes to digging them up to making sure that we are planning where we're going to cut all the firewood for the coming winter. Starting that, depending on how we've um, done with all the other stuff that needs to get done, but we can't necessarily do those things in the same capacity and the same efficiency if we would you know, wear ourselves out completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it it is. Again, it's like, well, you're essentially living an agrarian lifestyle. You know, there is a, a small amount of, of hunting involved and, and growing and gathering. But I think for the most part, you're you're relying on, on harvest. And, and again, that's a it's a it's an industrial uh, mechanism that we've kind of engineered as humans. Um that at this time of the year is is when we have to harvest and unfortunately it is slightly against the grain of the rest of the uh of of the world and of nature at this time of year but um yeah i think it's important for people to not feel like they have to uh be at that peak performance the whole time and especially this time of year i mean literally everything in nature is telling you to slow down you know right and it is it is nice to be able to do that. It's an extreme luxury um, to be able to do that as well. But I mean, it is also very very nice. Like there 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 is like there's so much joy to be had to be able to feel like you can take it easy and then work hard during the light hours and then allowing yourself to take it easy because you can see that you get the stuff done instead of working from from dark to dark being sitting inside and then expect yourself to be able to go outside in the in the dark and get everything done that you could have got, gotten done in the middle of the day well it's a luxury yeah. because we're working from home and the, the type of jobs right. that we're doing of course yeah of course i mean that's kind of what i'm getting at is in I remember again, like working in the office, like you get up, it's dark, you get on the train, it's dark, you get into work, it's kind of not too dark. Um, lunchtime, you go out, you go get a sandwich down the road and it's bright, you go back to the office. By the time you leave the office, it's dark again. And it's like, Jesus, man, it's like, we're not designed for it. You know, I think the way that you're working right now is like probably much more in line with a quote unquote like traditional time like uh what's the word timeline of a day for a kind of a a a person or a human for for a very long time you know way back when so i think yeah we're we're both lucky in that way i'm just kind of stuck in front of my computer uh, when it comes to work which is a little bit annoying but yeah i do have the freedom as a freelancer to be able to 
you know, put the laptop. I don't have, I'm not answering to any boss. I can, <laughs> I can take a day off. I can go to the woods. I can, you know, even go for a walk down the beach. I mean, we have the beach at the end of the road here. So there's no reason why I can't at any point in the day, just get my ass out of the chair. Um, but it's hard. But yeah. It's hard every now and then to do, to do that. Hard. Like, especially when you're sort of yeah. living in it for lack of better phrase, I guess, like you have, you have everything around, you have everything set up for you to do everything. And then you're like, well, where's the joy of longing for it? I have everything that like, I have the forest that I can go to. I have the beach that I can go to. So that, then it, it is easier to sit in front of the computer or on your phone scrolling and seeing other people being out and taking photos of stuff. It's like, yeah, that looks nice. I would like to do that. I have a spot 300 meters outside my door that I can do that to get that feeling that I can see in that photo. But it's more nice to sit there sometimes by the computer or the phone wishing and dreaming that you were there than it is to actually go out and do it. Yeah, and I think it's something that, I don't know if it was an episode I did with you or back, way back where I found I canoed so little when I was actually in a melon because I was living on the lake and I knew at any point mm. I could take a canoe and head out. Um, and I think it was because it was literally at arm's length that I found it really difficult or, you know, I, I probably did it a lot less than if, for example, I lived in a city and I had a trip planned for the end of the month or in two weeks where I was going to strap the canoe to the top of the car and get my ass out to a particular lake or whatever. Um, I guess it's just checking your balances, isn't it? It's like knowing or like, you know, um, taking advantage of what you have in, in the here and now and rather than, <laughs> sort of uh yeah i need to get out more for sure <laughs> yeah, basically <laughs> yeah. but i mean you you, you it, it is so easy to get or to, to forget what you have around when you have this sort of constant influence of what everyone else have around them or whatever they are deciding to show on for example instagram or or youtube or whatever social media people are using and showing what they're doing and it's so easy to long for what they are showing because they're like maybe maybe their photos are speaking to you in a way that you might not be able to recreate at home but you have that same sort of setting you have that same uh, coffee pot if you will you have that same knife that's in the photo but you cannot necessarily that image you know that you cannot create that image or you can't create that sort of um you, what, what, you, you you cannot create what it's what that how that image is speaking mm -hmm. to you so you're sort of like oh, it's easier to sit here watch this photo than it is to go outside sit by the by the by the river or sit by the creek or sit in the forest or it's easier to read a story about someone that is a really good writer that is talking about how they were stalking on this deer or how they were out fishing mm -hmm. on this lake or canoeing down this river yeah it's so nice to see that because then you're, you know, you're dreaming it in your head. You have all these images of how it's supposed to be. And then you go out and do that. And it's like, man, it is so slow stalking on this deer, man. It is so heavy to, <laughs> right, to yeah. uh, paddle this canoe. It's like, where is that romantic idea that this, this person was writing the story about or this photo that I saw, like it looks so romantic. So sometimes I guess it's a like a safety safety thing that we do to just sit there and, and enjoy the moment of, that someone else has created for us. 
I, I guess so. I mean, you know, there's very famous, like Jack London, for example, like famously uh, never didn't head out, didn't like spend a lot of time in the woods, if at all. He lived in like a city. Uh, I think he lived in like Boston or something. And, you know, has written White Fang and all of these like classic novels about outdoor life and like, you know, frontiersmen and all this. But as as a person, like literally never went out to the woods. So I think it can be important to also as a person who is kind of um, uh, consuming social media to just be aware that probably what they're painting wasn't the reality of the situation. It's the whole you know, Instagram versus reality trope that we all kind of uh, are familiar with. But I think it's it's important just to be aware that, you know, that person is not living this romantic life that you long for, that probably their experiences are just as... Because, yeah, it's like even when you're out with someone or when you're like on a trip and then you see the photos like two or three weeks later appear online, it's like, oh, it wasn't... That looks a whole lot that sky looks a whole lot bluer than I remember it being, you know, or whatever, right, you know, right. Um, but well, I mean, there, there's, there, there, there's a beauty in that, like where you can sort of, uh, I guess that's why you also fall in love with some photographers accounts on Instagram or whatever it might be like, they are giving you that, that feeling that you can relate to or that you long for, but might not be able to, recreate even if you tried yourself even if you have the exact same mountain that you could hike up on but you, and you see a photographer has posted pictures of that mountain earlier or that they were on it or made it fantastic youtube videos like that 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 ticked something off in you but you go there yourself and it's like this is like not at all what i had hoped to experience because you're seeing it from your point of view while the dream you had was from someone else's experience so those two might not correlate every single time. And then you might be like, oh, but why should I go out? I can just, you know, fall in love with books, read about <laughs> these majestic stories of Arctic travel or whatnot. Mm. And that's fine. That's fine, too. But like for for me, like I, I have to sort of kick myself in the in the butt sometimes and just get out while I, while I sit and stupid scroll on Instagram and see photos of like cool shit people just being out and it's like yeah or, or yeah exactly or it's like not necessarily that i can do that too it's just like but i also want to be out i also want to be out instead of sitting here scrolling right but it, it can go it can go both ways like both both uh, like can be very positive a positive influence but it can also be like why why does everyone else do this beside me kind of thing where it can go, you can get yourself into a rabbit hole. Yeah. It's so interesting. And I think, uh, I mean, I, I know of a few photographers who consciously don't post any of their actual photography up on their Instagram account, that their Instagram account is more for like backstage stuff. So, I mean, these are commercial photographers, they're doc, they're like, really well-known famous photographers that they don't put they can afford to not put their stuff up on their instagram people are not following them because they put up good photos on their instagram people are following them because they know who those people are and they want to see the progress or the process or the place that they're in and then you know six months later or three months later that batch of or that kind of series of of photos comes out based on that trip that they were on three months ago that you saw on instagram um and obviously that's a very niche thing, but 
I think there are people that are conscious about not using Instagram as a medium to share their own work, but to actually share, use it as a way to kind of keep people engaged in them as a personality or what they do. Um, and like for me, I think what I've been trying to do this month is just kind of every day, just pick a new topic and to kind of like try and um, instill just a, a little bit of knowledge that I would know of, of that like particular topic. Um, so I'm using the Instagram not as a way to like, although I do obviously, of course, enjoy putting up nice photographs, but um, right now for me, the purpose of using my Instagram account is to actually try and have conversations about uh, sorry about um you know anything like cooking fire uh, knots feather sticks whatever i had one on feather sticks today for example um i find those engagements far more fun you know to talk about and and of course the gear questions do come up what kind of knife is that you're using in that photograph what kind of you know is that a full tying is that a blah 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 you know but those but when those questions come up organically and the post isn't necessarily just about that particular knife um i think that's far more fun and far more sort of a um organic in the kind of the flow of the conversation people gravitate towards things that they're picking up on or things that they're interested in or things that they want to ask questions about within that specific post that isn't necessarily just about don't I look awesome in this jacket, <laughs> you know, or whatever? <laughs> no, but but it it, it is interesting. Like, how what what would you um, what would you consider then being more of like a honest, um, I guess, uh, honest photos from a trip? Well, what 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 does that mean? Because I that's that that's that's not necessarily honesty in photos is is the the only one that will know honest in photos is the photographer or the model if you will like anyone anyone that that sees the photo will decide if they believe this is real or not real if it's staged or not staged like so what 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 does that mean like is it more for the photographer or is it more for the consumer to sort of I don't know, believe more in the photos. I don't know. Like, what are you thinking when you say honesty? Yes, that's, and that's where the issue is, isn't it? Is that the, the line is so blurred for people where they don't understand or not to understand, but I guess maybe don't even think about asking that question. Is this photo a setup shot or is this photo someone who is like documenting a trip you know, and I think it, it's actually more difficult, funny enough, it's more difficult to act like to beautifully capture a, an organic uh, situation than it is to set one up. I think the real art comes from and the real beauty comes from uh, when, when I'm speaking spe specifically about photography and I think it's Instagram is not the best place for this because it's a tiny little screen it's a little square um, you know I, I've often taken shots and like when they're condensed down to that small screen it's like such an injustice to the the texture that you were kind of experiencing at that point in time and the ability to be able to like condense that down to a small screen on a on a, on a phone is almost like 
it's almost like a lost cause. You know what I mean? It's very difficult to do that. So you're kind of almost, uh, you know, you almost throw your arms up and just say, right, well, it's an Instagram shot. It's, <laughs> it's a sexy knife shot. It's a ferro rod shot. It's a this, that, or the other, like whether rather than like, for example, the amount of photos I took with you last, last winter, I would much rather put them in a book and write some copy and have that sit on someone's coffee table where they can scroll through and like have this photo sit on their lap on a full, you know, full spread of a, of a coffee table book. That's far more engaging. There's no likes on a photograph in a book, you know, or comments. Yeah. 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 I guess, I guess, I mean, you can fairly, fairly, I say that from my perspective and I, I'm not necessarily a good judge by, by, by any means other than for what I personally like and look for. You can quite, quite quickly see what someone's goal with, for example, an Instagram account might be like if they are, if they are more gear based. And I, I'm not saying that any of these things are right or wrong. Um, it's just like you can quite quickly see where people are at with their account of photography style if it's more like gear based or if it's more experience based or nature based or or nature landscape based if the photos have any sort of substantial text to it so that there's more than than meets the eye if you will like there's more than just that photo and then it's like caption of sunrise and then it's hashtags like then you might be there for the photos only but then if someone is really like a good writer good photos maybe only product photos but they have good stuff that they write about it or no product photos but they might have a crappy photo but they have fantastic text to it that is very valuable so like i guess that's where you as a consumer have to be able to See, yes, yeah, see, see the difference and sort of sift through what is healthy for me to look at right now. I guess, like, if you if you're looking at gear photos when you're feeling like you want to be outside and you see the, all these gear photos everywhere, then it's like maybe it's not the healthiest or it is the best coping mechanism. Like, there's no right or wrong. It's just, and it's just very interesting that. You know, there's something that I think about every now and then that I can sit here at home, look outside the window, see the snow on the trees and like, I want to go skiing in the forest. And it's like, all right, just going to have a cup of coffee. And then you start sitting and scrolling. You see other friends that have been out skiing. It's like, oh, that's nice. That's nice. That's nice. And then it's three hours later, it's dark and you haven't gone out skiing. You're just stuck on your phone while you have that right outside your house. I don't know what that phenomenon is called, but it's. Yeah, who knows? Um, I just wanted to, for people who are listening, thank you uh, for uh, the feedback from last week's episode. I think the cold weather episode that myself and Jeremias had done last week, we put a significant amount of effort into it in terms of the research and the show notes and all that kind of stuff. And clearly it was valuable to you all. So um, thanks for the people who uh, kind of gave the thumbs up on that or kind of shared it and said that it was really valuable to them. But um, we had a question from one of our listeners and I kind of wanted to respond to it here uh, with Jeremias because it kind of follows on a little bit from some of the stuff that we were talking about, Jeremias. And it was from um, Norse Alpine. 
And uh, so if you're listening, Norse Alpine, uh, thanks for this question. Um, he said, hey, Pork, I just finished listening to the latest Trial by Fire episode. On my hike today, I thought of a weird idea that fits into the topic of cold weather thermal regulation. Let's assume you're doing a strenuous activity in winter, i.e. hiking uphill, and you are starting to overheat. All the zips on your clothing are open, but you don't want to take any layers off. Um, would putting a piece of snow in your mouth be a valid strategy to help counter the overheating? It should take some heat to melt um, and give you some hydration. Of course, no yellow snow. Cheers, David. Um, and I think the first thing I thought about, Jeremias, was... Uh, your dogs because the dogs um, when they're running along um, they tend to scoop up snow with their mouths and don't necessarily eat the snow but it's something that I noticed on our first dog sledding trip was the dogs as they're running along uh, in the pack rather than stopping and like kind of uh, panting if that's not enough to cool them down I think they uh, they tend to scoop snow up with their mouths and it was the first thing I thought of and uh, yeah I wanted to ask you if what what you, what your uh, what your kind of thoughts on that would be? You're you're completely right that the dogs uh, eat snow to cool down. But what they also do that we don't do is that they uh, what is it called? Regulate their body temperature through one part being their tongue. Um, so that's why they can get really good effect from eating snow. Now there's a video of. Um, Moore's talking about eating snow in a survival situation to get water um, instead of boiling water, making fire, or using all the energy that you would need, um, calories that you would need to gather firewood, get fire going, all of these things. Like, Is it maybe better to just eat clean snow to get the water? I, I can't I can't remember exactly what he says, but he says something along the lines of like a a snowball size of a tennis ball is roughly one bread slice in calories that it takes for the body to um, the energy it takes for the body to to process that to melt that. So it's not that much as, but I'm not gonna swear on anything. We'll link to the video that I'm talking about in the. Um, uh, description of this podcast so you can see it for yourself so i'm not gonna um overquote morse um but the dog it works for the dogs because of how they're they are built for us it might feel good but i don't know if it would actually help from overheating i mean the uh, david here says that playing with the idea that you do not want to take on any layers off it might feel good but as I mentioned, for me personally, I would take layers off because I want to avoid getting sweaty for as long as possible. And I know that there's no shortcuts to that because I would have to eat snow constantly and then it would be hard to breathe while you're doing this strenuous activity. So it's easier to just strip layers off and continue. Yeah, and I don't see why. I can't imagine. I think of a reason why you wouldn't want to remove a layer of clothing if you were feeling like you were overheating i my response to him in the in the messages was something along the lines of um yeah that that is an interesting observation i think it's probably just as effective to drink cold water as it is to eat snow and probably better for you i believe you can um you can upset your stomach if you eat uh if you eat snow 
Um, I know that like camels can do it. Um, I just remember that randomly on watching some David Attenborough uh, <laughs> documentary, I think, where camels in the desert were literally <laughs> eating snow. But um, uh, for humans, I think I don't think it's very good for us. I think it's, it can lead to like a pain in your stomach if you try and eat snow. I think it's better to a better, more effective way of dealing with that is if you have a water bottle um particularly a stainless steel one um to travel with ice cubes in it to keep the water cold or failing that you could um you could like three quarters fill the actual canteen and then throw some snow in there to maybe bring the temperature of the of the actual water contents down and then drinking cold water if you drink enough of it um has the actual effect of slowing blood circulation in your body and as we all know heat is uh, transported through your body uh, through your blood um there is one thing to think about though uh when you mention having a stainless steel water bottle for example in winter that could cause a whole different issue if you're not careful or thinking of how you're doing in winter i more or less do not have my stainless steel water bottle with me because it is steel it is if, if you put your lips against steel or you, 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 you lick a lamppost that is frozen. That's not going to be beneficial for anyone. I've had the feeling of like getting my lips stuck to the stainless steel bottle once. So now in winter, I always have a wooden cup or like two Nalgene mm. bottles, small Nalgene bottles that are plastic instead of a stainless Super steel one. Just so I don't have to think about putting my lips against something that will be frozen solid and make my lips stick to the bottom. Very, very good uh, tip there, man. I, I never thought of that. So, yeah. Because this is, he, he, he was talking about it from a cold weather thermal regulation point of view. So in, in winter, like I changed my, my stainless steel bottle to two small Nalgene's because two small Nalgene's fit inside my boots in the morning if I'm camping. In winter, I'll heat up water or I have a thermos of hot water that I boiled the night before. I'll uh, fill the two small Nalgene's up so that there's hot water in them. I put them in my boots and my boots have a time, have some time to thaw up before I put my feet into them. And then you have nice and toasty boots instead of having two ice picks that you're <laughs> trying to pull on. I love that. That is some pro tips, man. That that's like a perfect example of like something I would never think about unless you're like living in it. That is that is genius. I love that. It it works, but it is it's uh, it's a little bit of pain in it. It's, it's a little bit of planning, but I mean, yeah, yeah, it works. No, no, you're totally right. I guess as well, like if you think about like a Stanley, like a thermos, the the lid usually functions as a uh, as a cup and more often than not they are also plastic lined so your your, your lips are never touching metal but they, they also come with a different problem if they are a little bit wet when you the cup part when you screw it on because you're screwing the threads onto metal and if you leave it like mm -hmm. that and that freezes you might have a really hard time to get it open in the morning so it's better to ah, leave right the cup off the thermos in for in my experience and then for the night and uh, mm -hmm. unless you have some water going so you can dip the top of the uh, thermos into the hot water so you can melt the ice that is built built up there's a lot of those small things that you that that 
you'll find extremely frustrating when you're sitting there and it doesn't matter how many people tell you that it will happen you'll still fall into the same pit and i still do every winter yeah yeah well i guess um maybe we need to do like an episode of just like little tips and tricks like that that's super interesting we should we should um we should get a a document together just of like the top, like these little tips and tricks because that that's some brilliant stuff but again it's like the type of stuff that you'd probably uh, learn if you came and spent some some time with us up north which is what we're give, giving you the opportunity to do um i think there's those the the interest for the course seems really really high so thank you everybody that's uh so far like shown their sport and sent here me as a message in terms of like being interested in getting on board um if you're i don't know if you're aware or not but just we only have six tickets um and the reason for that is not to make it super exclusive or anything but it's literally because that's as much uh space as we have in the cabin that you uh, sleep in but also on the dog sled teams like the the actual sleds themselves can only accommodate for i guess three people at a time which is altogether six plus uh plus Jeremias and and myself um so so the tickets are super limited so if you're interested in getting on the course don't hesitate i think as far as i'm aware there's already two or three already sold so um yeah get yourselves on there if you're if you're interested in it all right guys well thank you so much for joining us um it was a really interesting conversation a bit of a ramble i suppose uh but i guess this is some of the things that i've been thinking about and and Jeremias is thinking about there's sometimes these episodes don't necessarily have a specific topic in mind um and i also think it's nice after an episode like last week's that was super uh nerdy and information dense that we can bring episodes like this out every now and then and just i guess just talk and just have a bit of a, a chin wag and allow you guys to kind of kind of listen in and without having to really think too much about missing important information or anything like that um but i will i'm going to leave you now with an interview i did in uh, denmark with a man called event in norden um he was on the main stage in uh, in the on the danish outdoor festival and I had the pleasure of kind of sitting down and asking him some questions and talking to him and a really interesting guy. Um, he talks, he's a big, big opponent or advocate of like repairing your kit and like rather than going out and buying new stuff. So it kind of talks a little bit to what Jeremias and I were discussing earlier about, you know, maybe saving your money on buying new kit and maybe just like looking at what you have, figuring out how to repair it. If it's, you know, easier to repair something than, to go out and buy a super expensive new sleeping bag for example or something like that so he's like a real advocate for keeping your kit like repaired rather than going out and buying new stuff so um so that was kind of some of the stuff that we spoke about but uh, enjoy the episode or sorry enjoy the the interview with him um and until next time i don't know i mean what what have we got lined up next week Jeremias? We do have an interesting interview, hopefully with a good friend of mine called Toby. He's a Arctic survival expert and urban preparedness expert. He has held courses in, in here in the Arctic for about two decades, I think. He might have to correct me on that. And has done some fantastic work with um, a guy called Selko in the, the Balkans, teaching people how preparedness in urban situation and urban survival works so that's a completely different topic than 
that I am comfortable with, if you will, that I am uh, used to, rather. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I don't know much about at all. But the, what I really enjoy about uh, Toby's work, and we will kind of discuss this next week, obviously. Um, but having just looked through his uh, YouTube, his like really chill, reasonable sort of approach to like preparedness, um, be that in the home or be that in an urban environment, that it's kind of dispels the myths and of you know the prepper and the the kind of the nutcase gun toting republican kind of thing he's got a really um really kind of interesting way about going a rational way about going about sort of being prepared in your home you know for a natural disaster for example or anything like that um so if you guys get a chance to check out his uh, youtube channel prior to him coming on here um what what's i can't remember exactly what his youtube channel's name is yermius maybe you can refresh my memory on that uh tread lightly survival that's his uh company as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah so uh if you are interested guys prior to the as i said prior to next week's interview with him and get yourself uh, on his website and and check out his stuff we're going to be talking all things urban survival preppers uh preparedness some arctic survival some and Arctics. relaying it back to uh, what we've been discussing before and see see if there's any common ground that we can find through everything from bushcraft to arctic survival to urban preparedness to urban survival and like see if we can sort of tie these things together that in one way or another is supposed to enhance our everyday life absolutely sounds great i'm really excited to talk to him um he was supposed to come on this evening with us but he had some car trouble so we're going to schedule for next week but anyway here we've got an interview lined up for you already so uh fear not but until next next time guys i want to say from here in finland uh have a great week and enjoy yourselves out there and try get outside take care guys have a good one playing in a metal band <laughs> so it's kind of fun to all the school play when you're yeah we just fourth need a, grade something we just need a, a drummer and uh, maybe klaus you can do that <laughs> yes no growling there on my go. part does anybody play the spoons <laughs> can, can you whistle but not on a microphone i think fair enough fair enough but uh guys thanks for coming and joining us this is the first, I think, ever live recording of Trial by Fire. Uh, for you guys who don't know, maybe uh, Trial by Fire is an outdoor podcast that I run. Um, we've had Dave Canterbury on, Ed Stafford, uh, Paul Curtley, and things like that. So we we try and talk about things that are, you know, we talk about gear and we talk about, you know, the, the things. But I think the thing that I've tried to aim to do with the podcast in the past is kind of touch on kind of more of the... Uh, I guess the intellectual side of things are just like some of the deeper ideas with the outdoors, why we do it, you know, what, what drives us to be outdoors and, and you know, and obviously talking to people like yourself, um, it's, it's always interesting to see people's perspective. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your name and, and what you do? And, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm Vida Ljostan. Yeah, I'm a teacher and I am an outdoor instructor and a kayak guide and I have used four years in Norway the last four years to study outdoor science and uh, in a sociological perspective and uh, that's roughly my background. I have been always in the outdoors and bike tripping and 
hiking and canoeing and general outdoor experience. Uh, yeah. So I think more about the experience and the teaching the teaching the aspect of the outdoors that's easy to master or easy to learn and hard to master. Okay. So it's always I always see it as a process. Yeah. And we all have some thing we can learn. Even the best of us have something we can aim to do and we wish to do be better at. So no, absolutely. I think for everybody, at least for myself, like the an outdoor uh, sort of everybody has their own individual journey as an outdoors person, and they, whether they're aligned to more bushcraft or whether they're aligned to more hiking or you know they go down the more specialist route like climbing and kayaking. I think there's there's always this this climb, and you you have people that you look up to, and then you know you feel like you'll never reach that point, and then. You know, two years down the line, you're in a field with them, having a beer with them, mm. and then they're just normal people. Then you know, they're just like, like you or I, like who also had that journey. You know, would would, would there be anybody, I suppose, on your journey that you really looked up to? That you're like, I really need to reach that level at some I point. I think, I think, I still, I don't, I don't think I want to reach the level, but Berger Ausland, a Norwegian explorer who has crossed both the poles and made many expeditions, is like his philosophy about how to plan and prepare and all the small things right. makes up for the great journey where you have, you need to look at all perspective of the expedition or the trip to succeed. But I never want to cross the North Pole. Okay, <laughs> right. So you're never gonna, you're, No, you but I think the, the, the mental aspect of it and the planning and the, the eye for the detail is right. worth aiming to achieve perhaps. Yeah, um, by, by, I uh, the detail. What do you mean by that? It's like the, every single little thing. It's like if you here have for many years, you have developed uh, clothing for Norona, a Norwegian company, and if you go in and look on what difference there have been on a 16 years development process of a, a hard shell garment for the Arctic. Right. It's like the zipper pullers. It's the quality of the Velcro on your chest pockets, it's the length of the zippers, it's the material, and this goes all the way to mixing your own breakfast with, so you have to write, and making three different types of meal preparations for an expedition through the North Pole, because in the beginning your body is not used to that much calories you need, you cannot cope with the amount you need, right. and in the middle you need more, and the end you would need even more. Right. And Contrary to normal belief, you cannot start eating the big portions. Okay. And he had he had done that mistake himself on the South Polar expedition, and then over the years he had developed these systems okay. and just taking one thing at a time. So it's very much like a learning curve. Yeah. Or uh, it's like these little things that you would never think about, unless yeah. you're standing in the ice and you have right. the problem. Right. And and Berger has done it, and he has always have like this humble attitude that I need to improve to excel yeah. even though he have conquered some of the hardest challenge on this planet okay. yeah. it, it kind of almost reminds me of I don't know if anybody ever remembers in that scene in Saving Private Ryan when the new recruits come in after the guys have been like through this like hell and he comes in and like they're all just like battle hardened scars covered in shit and like the guy puts his bayonet on the, on the front of the rifle and they're all just like don't do that. It'll affect your aim. But like, yeah. it only takes it takes whatever amount of time experience for someone to know that because you're taught in training, 
put your bayonet on your rifle. Mm. Yeah. But through experience, they like, don't do that. Yeah. So it's like these little tiny things, you know. But I think what's interesting about just from going through like your Instagram and things, you're very much a proponent of like repairing your kit, your equipment, and you do these like uh, little tutorials about how to stitch and, and reuse and, and kind of fix up your clothing um, and your and your equipment and stuff. Is that something that you you kind of really try to to hone in on? Because it seems like very important to you. I think. I have been lucky enough to create a platform where I have some trust from some manufacturers where I can cooperate about development of gear and so on. Okay. And I think we're missing that part in the outdoors and we're missing that part in the social media part of the outdoors. We're overlooking all the maintenance things because they're boring, they're tedious. You don't get anything new. You don't it's get not anything. the sexy stuff. You cannot unbox uh, five stitches on a garment you did. Right. But you prolong the life of your garment and you prolong the stories you bring with that garment. Right. And the, if you buy and invest in quality items, it is an investment. It's expensive. And then I think it's worth using the time to repair and even more like modify to your needs. Yeah. Uh, so in sea kayaking, it's very common that you, s- you say you buy a kayak and then you it's a half product it's not done it doesn't fit you okay so you re-rig the lines so it fits your needs if you're paddling winter expedition you need bigger hoops or you need a another seat and i think many of the gear choices we are faced with we try to find that thing that's optimal but the problem is we're different all of us yeah so no manufacturer produce a product for you they produce yeah, yeah they produce a product for the masses yeah and for the commercial side of things, they want it to look nice, you have a new yeah. color and so on. So the hunt for the perfect gear, we always need, I think, yeah. to modify. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. And I think, yeah, and I think even particularly in the bushcraft scene, uh, we're like tinkerers. You know, we mess with things, we, we fix things, we stitch things onto other things, we find an old pouch that fits on a new backpack and... Um, I think it's kind of the nature of the types of people we are as outdoors people, at least for me. Um, so, like you said, although it could be a perfectly p- good piece of kit, you still want to make it your own. You still want to kind of put something on it that, that kind of, you know, it's like, yeah, but I, I, you know, redid the lining of it. So now it's got fleece lining instead of, mm. you know, that obviously is a, would be a big, a big thing. But I, I think there's a personal sort of... Uh, relationship that we have with that equipment. And like you said, it's like it takes time to to build that story with a piece of clothing i'm I'm an educated teacher and then we have we have this if you want somebody to do it they need to feel they own at least a part of it right and if you succeed in that whether it's like a football game or it's a bushcrafting course or something if you feel that you made a part of the choice or at least that you have a that you can like make an effect or you can persuade the, to go either way yeah. you're more pers- participating yeah. and the same goes for the gear if you have put in five stitches then it's yours yeah. it's nobody else's right. if you change the knot on the sleeping bag or yeah. re-rig the bag or it's whatever your it's yours yeah. Yeah. and you made the change yeah. and that make that piece of gear special yeah. Yeah. and unique Yeah, I, uh, I remember hearing about this uh, thing about Ikea it's like they said that one of the 
the main selling points actually is the fact that you have to put the, the piece of furniture together yourself, that it gives you a sense of ownership over that thing. Even though there's 100 million Billy bookcases in the world, mm. you put your Billy bookcase together and the screw on the bottom doesn't really fit because you screwed it in wrong. Mm. Uh, so you have to, really, you know, and it's like, it becomes your thing then. And, and that's why you create the story. Yeah, and I think that really ties into, uh, you know, it's, it's something in built in us as people, as humans, is like, we want to be feeling like we've the sense of accomplishment in, you know, even it goes as primitively as like, you know, building a fire or building a shelter. I think there's a very innate sort of uh, deep thing with us as humans that we need to be able to see tangible results for our efforts. Yeah. And I think uh, through tinkering with your kit or building something yourself or assembling your own piece of kit, I think you really get that sense then of... Uh, of ownership over it, you know. I was volunteering teacher in a folk high school in Norway, and I was very young, I was like 18, and then we were supposed to teach these kids, or they were also 18, so the young young people, how to pack a tent and how to pack it down, set it up, pack it down, set it up. And I had my method, okay, and it was perfect in my world. You couldn't tinker with it. And I was very strict, like this regime, you have to do this, we cannot see the bottom of part of the tent that has to be packed in because if you're putting it up and then it's wet in the bottom and then you have a horrible night and and all these young folks was like, you're the worst. <laughs> you're a sergeant from hell. You're an asshole. <laughs> yeah, why do we need to do it exactly like that? Right, right, right. And then this teacher, I was, I was uh, yeah, you helping. Uh, he was just like looking at me. He's like, when they cover in the mountain, they learn it. Right. When right. they put up the tent themselves, sleep in it, have a wet sleeping bag, They'll whatever. Know the difference, yeah. They know the difference. Yeah. You cannot yell it into them. They cannot, you have to experience it. You have to learn it. You have to learn it by doing it. Yeah. And then we can inspire each other by having a good example and a dialogue around why do I do it like this? Yeah. Yeah. Not, not a, a specific way to do things because... It won't work. It's not going to work, you know. No. Um, I, I suppose, with just kind of, I suppose, sticking on the idea of gear, do you think, I mean, I suppose this is slightly switching up gears, but I noticed that in the kind of the, the periods of the year where I suppose people can't get out, whether it's, you know, more of the winter kind of camping and things, um, people tend to replace experiences and in going out into the wilderness with buying new equipment. And I wonder with the current kind of current situation where, you know, it's been so hard to get out for people and so for people to travel and the money that people would normally be spending on experiences and going hiking in different countries and things, are they spending it on gear? Is there is there a sort of, I don't know if there's a, you know, what are people buying more gear right now? I don't know. I don't know either, but there's have been a tendency, at least in Norway, that people are out much more. Yeah. And yeah, exactly, much more yeah. people are in the nature within using, the country. Yeah, right, right. And the the paths that usually weren't that frequently used is now overpopulated. Okay, so you're seeing a lot more people getting outside a lot now. More, yeah, people used to yeah every day. That's so brilliant. And, and and it makes it makes another problem because we who have been out using the nature right. think this it's is ours. ours. <laughs> that path is mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That fireplace is mine. <laughs> Now it's overcrowded. I hate it. Yeah. And then I always get a little bit like, you have all the skills. You have been there before. 
move 500 meters the other way. Let them use the shelter. something else. Right, right. Use, walk the extra mile because the newcomers don't know. They won't find the path. They only find the Instagram poses of this nice hill and that track and it's two kilometers from the city and whatever. And we as experienced hikers and bushcrafters and outdoor people, we just welcome it. Come yeah, on, was, come along on the train. Yeah, let's get more people together because then the voices of the outdoors will be greater, louder, and have more influence. I agree. And uh, an interesting thing is here in in Denmark in Copenhagen, we have this outdoor area right at the center called Amarfjellet, and it has been a project to repay the met- metro line to build complex buildings. Okay. And now, over a very short period of time, actually, there's been a huge opponency <laughs> against this. Right, okay. And it has, the people have succeeded in stopping it. So people want to see these places remain wild? Yeah, yeah. wild and green, and they have succeeded in raising two million Danish grounds to stop it. At least for, I think, three or six months. Until a new ruling. But one thing is, if it were 10 people, it wouldn't do it. Right. 20 people wouldn't do it. 25,000, 30,000, now we're talking. Okay. And all these two million Danish crowns have been giving out of the pocket with no guarantee of it staying. Right. You won't get it back. So it's a real investment in the local nature. Yeah. And that is, at least in Scandinavia, I think, a tendency after COVID. You invest in the small, local, green areas where you have easy access and you get a feel of nature. Then the lust for traveling and exploring the Norwegian mountains or the Swedish forest or the Finnish lakes areas are coming second. Coming after that. So, so you have to start at your backyard. Exactly, I was going to say. That's, uh, yeah. that's, have, that's the way in and that's the way to motivate because you need to feel safe. And where you're safe, you're safe at home. Yeah. And and the f- the closer to home you are, the more safe you are. Absolutely. So yeah. so yeah, I think every everybody Norwegian kids they all have this if they are in the outdoors they all have this story about I slept in the backyard when I was three five two whatever it makes huge impact because I did it myself instead of this prolonged expedition to the North Pole or something where you. <laughs> hire a guide and then you just follow along and you just buy something stuff and a new gear and a new sleeping bag and everything and then you end up standing there and just feeling like a horse dragged along this trip and you have no feeling of I made the choice okay perhaps that's really interesting I think if we want the outdoors to be accessible we need to have the feeling I can do it myself Not with 10 guides, not river rafting guide around the Grand Canyon. Not for me, at least. Right. The outdoors is something I can... It's tangible. Yeah. yeah. I can touch it, I can feel it, I can master it step by step. And then I can challenge myself to a harder environment or a longer trip. Or a... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So so you see the, the kind of recent upsurge in uh, interest in the outdoors as, as a ultimately a positive thing yeah of course yeah why not yeah exactly yeah it's like where's the downside yeah exactly well i suppose the downside is that the lack of education that people might have that they start overusing places leaving garbage 
lighting fires in the wrong places, cutting down green woods, you know, things like that, which I'm sure happens everywhere. Yeah, um, it does. Sadly. But, I mean, you can't let that be a reason to not let everybody no. enjoy no. the outdoors, no. you know. So, so that's really interesting and, it, and it's great to see uh, just I suppose just to switch it up a little bit just for me personally this is the first event that I've been at since COVID and everything locked down and it's so amazing to see everybody and to share a fire with everybody you know I mean we've got the guys from Freelifland here who I haven't seen in eight months we've got like you know people coming from Sweden or I'm coming from Finland and it's just it's amazing to see everything coming back to life again where do you see uh, you know the the, do, do you see that it's going to kind of stay that way and you think it's going to keep going and I'm really hoping that we're not going to have to kind of shut things down again the COVID restrictions we have no power in. it's like it's a it's a virus it's a pandemic right and the outdoors doesn't have a voice in that we don't have an influence no and in, in some ways I think we never did no you know and, and people just go out anyway yeah. and it's like you know, government like lifting all these restrictions, like, oh, I didn't know that I was restricted in the first place to do that, you know. Yeah. But uh, in Ireland, it was a lot worse. Like, we, we, people in Ireland couldn't go beyond, I think it was three kilometers from their homes at one point. Yeah. For months on end, we, like, people literally couldn't go three, three kilometers beyond their home. So, um, but I think people were, people like us bushcrafters were just going off finding places in the woods anyway to, to do it. But uh, no, it's, it's great to see things uh, kind of coming back up to life again. And hopefully, this isn't the, the last uh, festival of the of the year. I probably won't be because no. the commercial interest right always follows where the people are. Yeah, for sure. So if we have an uprise in users, exactly, we have an exactly. uprise in yeah. commercial interest. No, exactly. So the budget for a festival like this it will only grow because yeah. people who are producing knows that they need the folks yeah. to buy the, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. things yeah. and they need to be here and they need to listen. Yeah, for sure. Because there's no consumer there's no brand there's no business and, and I think Denmark in particular has a very big like a hiking scene I think that a lot of that has to do with the kind of the, the, the style of the land that's here it's very similar to Ireland there's a lot of pathways a lot of fields like not so much forest but definitely a lot of hiking trails um, and I think there's a focus on gear here because of people need lightweight kit because they are going on these long hikes and long trails and you can walk from here to you know, to Sweden if you want to, like, you know what I mean? And yeah. But I also think that's partially due to the outdoor tradition. Okay. <laughs> because... And what, what is the outdoor tradition here in Denmark? Because is is bushcraft, like, I think bush... I always think of bushcraft as, like, an older, maybe, like, the kind of the Sami sort of Swedish thing. I think in Denmark it feels a lot more modern. People love their gear. People love their hiking. But, but let me rephrase that. It's, yeah, it's coming it. down to the restriction that have been due to that the land is owned and you don't have the same accessibility as you have, for instance, in Norway, where you have Elementsraten, which is called the all men's right, and you are actually allowed to travel through yeah, people's grounds and yeah. you're allowed to make fire, but you're not allowed. There's still rules. It's not a, it's a common yeah, misconception it's not, it's not free, that it's free reign. No. You can free range and you can just cut down whatever you want. You still have rules. Yeah. But the accessibility of the land and the mountains are hugely different because here for a long time it has not been easy to travel through nature. It has not been easy to find a campsite. You have much more restricted. But through the last, correct me if I'm wrong, in the audience, three to four years, 
free range camping, free campsites have exploded, literally, and uh, the state wants to have these places where people can set up tents. Yeah. And still we have partially funny regulations, like the tents is only allowed to be three-person tents, and you're not allowed to stay for more than 24 hours. You're not allowed to have groups larger than that, and you can book, like, reservate shelters oh, in really? the forest. Okay. So if you're coming as a hiker, and <laughs> somebody has reservated this shelter, you can get in a conflict around whose right is to own this place. Oh, sounds complicated. And that makes it complicated instead of, like, Norway and Sweden, where just, all right, you rock open. somebody is there, but we have to find it out because I don't have more rights than you do. Right. We're equal. And, and this makes perhaps a part of the, the, the community around outdoors in Denmark. It's uh, affected it. Yeah. And so that's why many Danes and Norwegians are, uh, Danes are seeking to Sweden and Norway because it's yeah. easier. Okay. Uh, that's really interesting. So these, these shelters that are all up around here, you can like hire them? I don't know if these ones, okay. but you have uh, this digital system where you can go... Everything's on an app, man. Lock. Yeah, exactly. That's so annoying. I, some of them are, and some of them aren't, and some are booked into, like, 2023, and somebody is not coming there anyway, so you have to take a chance, or you man. have to bring a tent, or you have to bring a top, or have a backup solution. And it's hard. Yeah, that's really frustrating. And that's, for me, living four years in Norway is, like, one of the heart blows yeah. uh, moving back and then there's one funny thing that's giving a real good example of the bureaucracy around this is like all the coast of Denmark you're allowed to make an emergency shelter but it's not allowed to have a picture tent with a bottom in it and the paragraph says it cannot be a tent like shape Oh, so that's and I don't know what a tent-like shape is because <laughs> I've got one that's round and one that's a tippy and one that's an A-frame and one that's a tunnel tent. Right. So I don't know where is this emergency shelter shape that's well, that, not yeah. tent-like. Well, that's coming from people writing rules that don't actually understand. And nobody, what, yeah. a large amount of people don't know this rule exists. I didn't notice it. And yeah. a large amount of people don't beat it, perhaps, right. because if I'm paddling around Denmark... I'm pitching my tent on the beach shoreline and then I'm leaving next morning and nobody will say anything. You have to be very unlucky or meet the man who owns the land and he's yeah, pissed right. because somebody has left his shit and cut down his fresh green tree and something stupid. Yeah. And that's the route to a lot of conflict. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I think that's a lot of the problem with Ireland um, just from my own experience is that is that basically camping is even more difficult in Ireland than it is here. Um, it's essentially illegal almost everywhere um, and it's down to that it's people's lack of education people's lack of understanding and like where do you think that should start like should it start in sec like high school you know because I think and I mean sorry to the Danes here I know we're in Denmark but when I was living in Sweden uh, and I was working at Imeln and a lot of the times the issues around people leaving fires on islands or people leaving you know uh, root fires starting was almost it almost seemed to be always Danes, actually, <laughs> funny enough. Um, and uh, what do you think that is? Is that a lack of education from a young age, or is it just Danes like to party? Yeah, it's <laughs> a, hard, a hard thing, because 
you're always pointing fingers. You have three fingers pointing back at you. So I'm very. Oh, uh, I like that. I don't. I don't. I don't dare to say that the Danes are uneducated <laughs> I'm gonna or, be, I'm gonna be or boring or something. Pitch for dead of the country. But yeah. it's. Uh, I can speak from what I know of, and that right. is in Norway. You have it in the constitution, the Almansrat. Okay. So it's going way back. Okay. And that leaves leaves it as something special. And everybody wants to know what it is. So you have it on the school schedule in your sport teaching. You have to have an outdoor, a day outdoors. You have to spend the night outdoors. You have to be te- taught to use a compass. And now even they have to have swimming education outdoors. Okay, and wh- just to rephrase wh- that, it's, the school year starts in August. And before May 17th, these kids have to have been out swimming in open water. So you have like two or three weeks where the water temperature is around above 17, if yeah. you're lucky, yeah. if you're in the southern part of Norway. And this is whole, whole of Norway. So, so I don't know if we could say it, but there's a little bit more hair on the chest if you do that. Yeah, I was going to say that maybe... Everybody needs to go swimming, <laughs> swimming from August Government to May. Government issue swimming. <laughs> and you need to learn to self-rescue. And right. So, so there's an interest and there's huge funding state-wise okay. to keeping this tradition in Norway of the outdoors. Yeah. And it's connected to the identity of being Norwegian. Right. It's one of the things that when they left the Kalmar Union and they was out of Denmark and it was just themselves, this was one of the things that identify a Norwegian man. The ability to be able to... It's the outdoors. Right. We use the outdoors. We're connected to the mountains. And they have used the outdoors as farmers and fishers and and I think, partially in Denmark, we have been industrialized much faster than Norway. So the distance back to nature, back to the farm where you actually know where the cow is grazing it's, it's and the sheep, yeah. it's much further. Yeah. So the, the connection to nature and understanding of the ecosystem and fire and root fires and all this, you have much more, many more steps that's already laid in in the culture. Elsewhere, do you think though that industrialization, uh, like farming and things like that, like it's it's kind of the opposite of what we're talking about though? Like, because again, for yeah. me in Ireland, I find, uh, and again, like obviously I'm Irish, but I live in Finland now, and I have lived in Sweden, and the main reason I moved was because of my lack of access to outdoors and land in Ireland, and didn't kind of appeal to my lifestyle. But we have everything is owned by farmers and it's farmland and Ireland was basically an agri- has been an agricultural country for so long that we've lost our ability to, to be in the woods. And I think Denmark's quite agricultural as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very much agricultural yeah. and that makes also every piece of land has a value. Exactly. Yeah, and that makes it a monetary, monetary value. That's exactly, to, and then emotional if value. You, if you look in Denmark, everywhere you can take like you can just spade out this hillside over here, and then you can put some corn on it, and then you can feed some pigs, and then you can produce some bacon, and then you can export, and then it has a value. If nature doesn't have a value in itself we make something grow in nature that has a value. Oh, that's where the tourism comes in, I suppose, isn't it? It's yeah. like, like with Norway, it's like... But you, but can't, you can't farm on the side of a mountain, though. That's exactly. Norway. So, so Norway have this huge areas where you can grow grass on this little piece of land right down the foothill. 
but the farmer owns a part of the hill, and the part of the hill can give access to the elk hunt. So you need to have this part of the hill, like a forest, because else the elk won't be there. Right. Or you can't collect mushrooms, and you can't collect berries. So the connection between the wild nature and the agriculture is much closer in Norway, I think, because the, small, the smaller farms. Yeah. You don't have these huge pig farms right. or cows. Okay. So, and they, but, but the, on the other hand, all, it's regulated. So all the things you buy in the shops where you buy your food, the meat prices is two, 300 kroners uh, a kilo. And for Danes, that's crazy. It's ludicrous. Okay. <laughs> for a pork belly, like. So, so it affects the whole community and the whole society. That nature is the way it is in Norway. Yeah. They don't have another option. Yeah. They need the nature to be there. They cannot move the yeah. mountains. Yeah. Even though they try, they cannot do it. So they have to cooperate with it. Right. And they need to find a value of it because it's there no matter what. Okay. So if it doesn't have a value and we don't use it, we just have this hillside that's blank. Yeah. But if we ski and camp and harvest the mushrooms, the hillsides have, have it a has value. It has an actual value, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really interesting. And that's a tradition that they have had yeah. forever. Yeah, I love that. But um, I, I want to take advantage of the fact that we have an audience and to see what questions they might have for yourself or myself. Um, so has anybody got anything to say? <laughs> I know you guys like to talk. <laughs> Come on, you got something. I'll let you think about it. I just want to check this real quick. So I mean, we're only we're only half an hour talking. Yeah. And we've got we've got the next half an hour. If you want, we can keep talking. Or you guys have any questions? Feel free to chime in. Um, Elsa, I have I've used some time on, on studying the sociological. Yes, path and that was one thing. I, yeah, and it's and something that I didn't want to talk to you about because oh, I'm gonna fix your level because you're just a little bit low there. Yeah. Try that. Not used to a microphone. I'm just used to yelling at the t the students and <laughs> shouting in the classroom. It's not like this. That's okay. But I know, and I don't want to take too much away from, because I know that you're giving a talk. Is it tomorrow you're giving yeah. a talk? Um, and just a little bit about what we spoke about over Instagram. Mm. It sounded really interesting. And it's something that I find really fascinating. And it kind of ties into the philosophy of this podcast, where it's in touching on the sort of the, the mindset of things and the ability and the, you know, touching on social, social sociology and things like that. And you were talking about the connection that we make to our equipment. That's kind of a little bit what we were talking about earlier about repairing your gear and mm. having a story to tell about it. Could you tell us a little bit just about what I, you're going to be talking about sure. and, and kind of where, where, where you got the idea to from? jump back uh, one step or two steps and then this perspective is coming from a, a sociological uh, study and uh, this fellow, a German fellow called Bruno Latour wanted to explain f social phenomenons and was faced with this problem that all these social theories, they only account for the people. And all of us sitting here, we are sitting on a bench, sitting on a table, we are some having a beer, we have a microphone. All these things were always unaccounted for. So he made this theory called actor network theory, 
where all the humans and the non-human actors got a role. And what identifies a non-human actor is the ability to do something. It can do an action. So this microphone is hiring my voice and sending it out to the public and right. people can hear it. This bench is giving me a place to rest and it can tip over and make me look like a The fool. affordances of the yeah. object. So all these, this process of identifying all the actors made an, an interesting perspective on the outdoors because many of us don't go out in nature naked. I don't think so. So we bring something. We bring sandals, shoes, belts, knives, smartphones, cameras, watches, whatever. And when I did my study, uh, master thesis, I wanted to know how technology is affecting the outdoors. And I made it a project around a local activity where you have your smartphone and then you have some GPS locations and then you can check in and then you get points. Probably something you can like the Pokemon Geo geocaching. Yeah, almost. Yeah. yeah. And then there has this. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I've just lost the word. Concurrence in English. Competition element where you have you made gamified. Yeah. yeah. Gamified exactly. And the interesting things was when I interviewed people, they said your smart their smartphone made them go another way, choose another path or choose not to go all the way. Because when I'm sitting here, I could check in on the benches 30 meters away. So the goal was the benches 30 meters away, but it was only to get the points. It was not to get the view or talk to the docks. That part disappeared. Even though the point, the GPS location was chosen for the nice view, the points had an action. They made them turn around as long as you checked in you could just turn around and go back. And even some, and this is just an example, turned around if they didn't bring their phone. Then the trip was not worth it. Yeah, it's like, like if you didn't so, tell yourself so, the so, gym, you didn't even work exactly. out. <laughs> if you don't check in, it doesn't exist. And that's like this Strava, I don't know if some cyclists are among us. Strava has this, if it's not on Strava, you don't, it doesn't happen, it doesn't okay. exist. And this is this training app for cyclists who wants to be the fastest up the hill or something. And this was people going for a hike in nature. And all these arguments about being close to nature. But if they didn't bring their phone, it didn't have a value. So, so it made, for me, this theory points out that all these objects we bring affect how we act. Whether we choose not to bring them, not to bring the GPS watch because we know we don't want to track it, or we bring it to track it. So all these objects have an influence. It's kind of like Pokemon Go. Yeah, <laughs> but it's down to it's down to your pants. Right. Because if you look on Instagram, everybody is wearing a Fjellreon Kip trousers because you get a nice butt on these pictures, and then you know the drill, right? And if you're not in the Fjellreon Kip trousers, you only take an upper body shot because you're not in the right trousers. Right. And this pinpointing the action of the objects yeah. makes it really interesting commercially wise because every brand wants to sell you the new collection, this new color or something. Or they want to tell you, 
you can only do this activity with this jacket or this that knife right. or something. It's yeah. exceptional, yeah. and you get another feeling, or yeah. you get more connected to David Cameron because he has made the knife, he's designed it. Yeah, right. And this story of this object, we buy it. Yeah, yeah. and it's so enrooted in our society that these objects makes are different and make different actions and sell us those experiences even yeah. though they are almost the same yeah. uh, no, so no. i think that's that's the rough idea it's uh, absolutely fascinating to me and it is it's i mean there's so many tangents that you can jump off from that one thing that i'm just thinking of right now when i was in lars's house yesterday he showed me a book that apparently a lot of kind of uh, Danes and, and Swedes know about it's uh, Eld it's a book about yeah. fart, an yeah. old yeah. Swedish book um, and I've kind of flicked through it it looks like a beautiful book but what struck me was the photographs in it um, all the men and women in that book they're all 50 plus they're all older of an older generation and they're just wearing whatever the fuck mm. you know what I mean there isn't, there's nothing fancy about the clothing that they're wearing tattered wool jumpers and mm. you know a pair of old chinos and stuff and it just works for them and, and there's something lost about that I think in the outdoors where we're so tied to oh well I don't have my rain jacket that I wanted to take a photograph of and I'm speaking for myself as well like I'm guilty of it you yeah, know it's like too. shit I didn't bring that Patagonia rain jacket yeah. that I told somebody would take a photograph of for them um, and then does that diminish from the experience maybe if you let it do it do that to you yeah but I think the, the, the main point is that you are aware of it Exactly. Because if you choose that you want to take the pictures, if you want to have bring a camera to take pictures, that's fine. That's the choice that you're making. That's fine. But if you're only, if you're dragging along your smartphone and you feel a need to take a picture or check in or whatever, and it's not your choice anymore, but you need to do it before the action have any value, then we need to think. Yeah. Then we really need to be critical of it because isn't the experience or the actions we choose to do a valued enough in itself? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and this is a, like, it's one of the few times I can say I have a real dilemma because I'm running this Aeon 2 and one It's a blog and I'm testing gear. But I hate bringing the smartphone to take the picture, to stay online, to connect. And I come home from this trip where I've tested this gear or something and I don't have any pictures. Did it even happen? Did it even happen? Do I have any value? And yeah. this is it's like a dilemma is often spoken of in like not hard choices. But here it has either I can do it and then it changes my outdoor experience or I can don't choose not to do it and then I don't do my job. Right. <laughs> you see? And it's it's like this good friend of mine, he was a folk high school teacher for outdoor education. He had three or four days out each week, and I thought it was the dream. Think about it. Out Norwegian mountain, getting paid, sleeping in a tent, waking up three days every week. It's like stars sprinkle in my eyes and smiling or just the thought of it. And he looked at me after a year I was helping him. He's like, I'm not on I'm not on hiking, I'm not out, I'm on work. Right. Right. It's a different mindset. He had this twin twelve teenagers he needed to think about. And when he walked the same route, even though he walked a new route, it wasn't hard for him. He wasn't 
experience the outdoors, if you say, because he was focusing on these 12 kids he was bringing along. And these kids had brought all sort of actors, all sort of non-human actors, like half a liter of Coca-Cola and a pair of jeans and pajamas and a, a liter of shampoo or something idiotic that make them sweat like hell and thought it was dead and dread to be out in the outdoors. And perhaps many of us experienced folks are aware of the non-human actors that we interact with, all these objects, because we fine-tune, we put a new hip belt on, or we change the line, or we change out the grind of the knife from a scandy to a V-grind or whatever, and we are aware of it. But more of the newcomers look to us, experienced folks, and think we need that and that and that and that for a day trip, where what I have tested is for a week trip, or a snowshoe trip, or trip with my kids or something, and we yeah. and we copy without copying the goals yeah. and the, the the challenges. No, I think I, I I think you're right, and I agree with you in the sense that sometimes I feel like as out, as outdoor not professionals but like enthusiasts, let's say mm. we do tend to over prepare and like over kit ourselves out, like you know. I'm going out for a walk up the hill. Do I really need my grail and my massive hip? You know, when I was living in Imaon, like particularly during the summertime, if I was going out camping in a kayak, I had very limited space in the front of the kayak. So I couldn't bring the backpack and the tent and the thing, this, that, and the other. And I, and I would more often not go out in a pair of Nike trainers, a sh- pair of shorts, a t-shirt, uh, maybe a jumper if it was going to get cool, uh, you know, cooler in the evening and a hammock and that was it like that's literally all I needed and if I'm honest more often than not the only time I used my knife was to cut some tomatoes yeah. or some mushrooms mm. you know it wasn't breaking down you know I wasn't making feather sticks I wasn't doing anything like that because it was fire bands you know it's just I and, think th- and there you're, to, you're pinpointing yeah. a, a good example because if you don't know what you're doing it's a dangerous situation right exactly right yeah. if, if you know what you're doing it's not dangerous because you know what hazards are ahead of you. And we have this uh, very known hiking trail called Trolltunga in Norway. And every year, the Red Cross is rescuing, I don't know, 300 people at least from this hiking trip. And it's an eight-hour hiking trip. And people are showing up in this tourist bus coming in with the cruise ship, and they have high heels and shorts. <laughs> and it's, it's almost... It's a, you can have snow in July. Yeah. And coming up with baby strollers and right. I don't know yeah. things and sure. doodads and yeah. idiotic so things con- and not prepared. Right, and so. then the conflict comes because then I want to go there and then I can't do it because you have to get accepted by these guys who are there because they're so pissed at bringing people down. And you have to pay a fee on the parking because there's so many people who want to go there. Right. And I've never been there. And it's the first. It's one of the first big questions people ask. Have you been on Prægestolen and you've been on Trolltunga? Right, right. And you hear it over and over again. And I was like, it doesn't say me anything. It's boring. It's an Instagram picture and I don't want to go there. And if right. it's on Instagram, I'd rather take the mountain next door. A kilometer on the west side. Same short. No people. But you need to learn to read the maps to go there. Right. And that complicates things. Yeah, but I think on the other side of, of the coin, just to play devil's advocate with that, is that there is a, a, 
a propensity for our generation to spend our money at, at least you know as the results say uh, we spend our money on experiences and not on stuff you know our parents generations they spent their money on nice cars big TVs you know mortgages and stuff and realized that they're not very good things to invest in apparently so our generation probably because we can't afford those things more often than not we're spending our money on trips and some people are spending their money on trips even though they're not experienced and you get those people with strollers and high heels yeah. and I think it's a responsibility of ours rather than bitching about them and going oh I fucked that trail to be you know, well you know maybe there's a better way of doing this maybe there's a better way of explaining or I don't know is there a solution to that you know because there has to be a middle ground rather than just saying I'm going to take this trail because that then breaks away from the inclusivity that we're talking about with the newcomers on the block because of the COVID situation for example of uh, course so so where but, what's the but, middle ground uh, there was a, a great article on, on a Norwegian magazine called Ute where it said plan your next trip without Instagram and a smartphone Right, go back to the old school, find a map, and then just plan it out. Right, and then go, and then there's this, there's these Norwegian for uh, mountain rules, seven mountain rules, and just one of them is ask the locals, right? Because if you Real stand, one. if you stand on the foot of that hill and you ask the locals if you can go up in sandals, he looks at you and he says, "If you want to go eight hours through hill and freeze your butt off, you're welcome." Yeah. Right? <laughs> they don't, they won't pity pat at it because. First of all, they don't earn any money of it because they're not guiding you up the trail. Second, they don't want you to sit up there because then they get restrictions. So they tell you how it is. And then you can say, all right, I come back next time. And then he says, all right, that's great. Take the trail on the left side because the view is great and there's nobody there. Right, exactly. So they, And I don't know that. And, I've, uh, and if you haven't been there, you don't know it. You don't have a chance. So ask the locals. And it's not necessarily a guide. It can be the local farmer or the, the, the local shopkeeper. <laughs> exactly, because yeah. he probably knows. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. if it's an outdoor shop, he probably knows where the fishes are. Right, well. yeah, and for he sure. Won't, <laughs> he won't. He won't tell you. He won't tell you you're a good fisher. <laughs> but the trail he shares. Right, 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 right. But dude, honestly, it's been an, an amazing uh, chat with you. Thank you so much for for taking part in such short notice. And we kind of only planned this today. Didn't really, weren't really sure what was going to happen, but you know, it's been a really fun time talking to you. And um, really quick before we wrap it up, last up, last chance. If anybody has any questions, uh, feel free to to shout. Yeah. You said you moved from Ireland to Finland. Yes. I didn't move from Ireland to Finland. I moved from Ireland to Sweden. I lived in Sweden for a year. Uh, I lived in Imeln Canoe Center. Uh, Jon Maren, he's just over there. He he runs the canoe center. So, we had a trip over there um, two years ago. Uh, Klaus was there as well, and we had a we, there was a Pathfinder course there. Uh, but the week before, we had like just an outdoor adventure, and I kind of fell in love with the place when I was over there, and uh, just asked them if there was any opportunity to move over. You know, if I could work at the canoe center for for the summer or something. And uh, he very kindly offered to uh, let me stay in his. Uh, there's a little cabin by the lake, uh, by the canoe center. Um, and he said, yeah, if you want, you can stay there and you can work at the canoe center and, you know, I won't charge you any rent or anything like that. So um, so I quit my job in Ireland as a graphic designer, lived in Dublin, uh, gave them two months notice and then got my ass over to Sweden. Um, 
and then I spent a year there and then my, my girlfriend is from Finland so after a year living in Sweden it was kind of back and forward trying to see each other and then with COVID it was really difficult to get across borders and stuff so uh, we kind of just decided to ourselves that I think it would, be, it would be better if we either she came to Sweden or I came to Finland and then ultimately I decided to go to Finland and, and kind of move over there to her so but there's a beautiful outdoor scene there as well so it's been a really uh, nice new opportunity to kind of work with some hi work with some um uh finnish companies and kind of experience what the finnish outdoors is like because it's very similar to sweden it's it's just a little bit wilder mm. uh, they have right to roam laws and everything like that there so um beautiful country to be in and i recommend if anybody hasn't been to finland to try and try and get over there and, and enjoy it but yeah just bring the mosquito net huh yeah it's it, hunting yeah Oh, hiking, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, lots of bears, though. <laughs> bears and wolves. <laughs> I've yet to come across any yet, but uh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. I would fear the mosquitoes the most. Oh, my God, the, the la- mosquitoes is, are the, la- the worst. The land of a thousand lakes. And God like, damn it, I hate them. I have been there on a biking tour, like, when I was yay high, and, like, many years ago, and I, I got this telling from my parents, like, they arrived and all standing there punching us this Finnish guy we know he's just standing eyes cold it's like why do you do that <laughs> just stand still they won't yeah, I yeah I was hurt and I wonder is it true yeah just stand well, still they won't bite I was, uh, have you learned it yet? no that's not true at all that's bullshit but they do say I, I had this very similar experience I was like batting them off me and the guy I was with the Finnish guy was like you know if you hit them off you it only itches more just let them suck your blood and go away. It's like, ah, oh, dude. But the, yeah, the Finnish muskies are a different different breed altogether. Uh, any other any other questions? No? Cool. Well, look, again, thank you so much for coming on board with me and talking this evening. Um, Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yes, time to have some food and some beers and enjoy the rest of the weekend. Hope you guys have a great one. All right, thank you. Take care.